Well, Richard, last time we were talking about uh, your tenure at the Tower Arts Centre and mm-hmm. uh, remembering some, some classic gigs. And one of the things that crosses my mind quite often at these gigs is when you talk to people and you realise that they've actually got very little idea of what's gone into it and indeed what's going on during the course of the evening because as far as they're concerned and it's fully understandable and it's you'd do the same if you went to theatre or cinema they buy their ticket they come along they see the band and they go home again but that's perfect i mean in a way that's kind of what i was saying is that you know you people shouldn't notice that in the way it's like good design you know you shouldn't shouldn't really notice good design it's just there um, that's right. Uh, that's why I never get any of your font jokes, you see, because I don't even know you're talking about fonts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, back, back to papyrus. Well, yes, I completely messed up the papyrus. I'm so sorry about that. But for me, it's like a scroll that you wind down and uh, and and read from. But uh, wait till we do a Helvetica episode. I'll do a whole a whole episode dedicated to different weights of Helvetica. I think. I th- I think hell without the Vetica comes to mind for that uh, conversation. Um, As as they say, I'll use Ariel when Helvetica freezes over. (laughs) I prefer Purcell myself. I mean, Ariel's (laughs) not not that good, is it? (sighs) That was a... An attempt at a Shakespearean reference, but that's not going to work either. So it was let's good. move. Let's move away. Let's from move such on tri- like a tempest. Let's move on. <laughs> such trivia. Uh, the old uh, the old thing adage about the the, the graceful swan with the uh, with the legs uh, going mad underneath the water that you can't see that it pretty much sums up gigs, doesn't it? Because yeah. in the background there are invariably dramas going on. Yeah. And by the time the doors are open, there have been numerous uh, panics yeah. um, leading up to it. And so I, I was going to try and uh, talk about that. And then I realized that it might be possible to do just by talking about one particular artist, one particular band, who we uh, together have put on 13 times. Well, 13, 12 and a half, I'm calling it, because one of the main gigs that we're going to talk about Blimey. wasn't put on by us, but we traveled uh, halfway across Europe to see it, but so twelve gigs that, ah. that between us we've put on. I know since you were in Spain, I've been sort of um, my my f- flappers or whatever the swan's feet have, have carried called, on have, have carried on flapping, uh, whereas you're sunning yourself on a beach somewhere. But um, <laughs> so yes, Chuck Prophet uh, mm. is a very very highly respected musician from san francisco Hmm. used to be um the co-front person of a band called green on red so uh when we got offered uh, a show with chuck prophet i i almost fainted because to me you know he's up there with the likes of tom petty and and such uh american guitar heroes and songwriting heroes correct me if i'm wrong but when we started doing the sxse gigs did like we had the a kind of weird not well yeah kind of bucket list of who we want to book and i had eitzel as number one on my list and you had chuck at the top of yours yep indeed and 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 just to, to illustrate the way these things sometimes come together that people possibly just don't really understand is that 
um, we get all our individual bands from what's called agents and from people who kind of hire them out. And they tend to be, with the greatest respect uh, to all of them, they tend to be a bit impersonal and you don't really sort of, you know, beyond signing a contract with them, you don't really get to know them. And uh, we were approached, well, you can tell me what year, probably uh, around about uh, 2004, I'm guessing, by um, a gentleman in, called Chris Metzler who lives in London. He's American. Yeah. He's a, he spent his entire adult life in the music business, in record companies and such. And... Uh, he offered us the Van Richmond Fontaine uh, that, and that's, you know, I'm forever grateful to Chris because that kicked us off and gave us the confidence to realize we could put bigger names on when yeah, prior to yeah, that yeah. We, we, we hadn't. And uh, I also, he's the most wonderfully delightful person. Uh, he's, he, he is American and he's, he, he, I love to deal with him because he's straight. He says exactly what's what. And he's, uh, you know, plain talking, uh, but he's also got this very highly developed English style sense of humor. I was going to uh, mention because... that. It's absolutely, <laughs> it's the driest, darkest sense of humor I know. It's just so, so good. It's it's amazing. Uh, I think that's, you know, he's got, he's got an English wife and children lived in London for many years and he's picked all that up. But his speciality is ringing me up and pretending to be somebody else. Oh, really? Uh, and, I didn't know and, this. Oh, yes. And every single time I fall straight into it. So he'll... he'll so he's like, he's like Bart Simpson and, and you're Mo at Mo's bar. And like Chris is, is phoning up and, and asking for stupid named people. And you're falling for it every, uh, every single... Yeah, that's, that's exactly what happens. I mean, I, you know, I can't think of any specific examples. Right now, but it'll normally be to do with something I've put on Facebook in the previous day or something. And, or if he, if he spots that I'm slightly vulnerable or worried about something, then he'll, he'll home in on that and uh, pretend to be some person bringing up to complain Superb. about some aspect of something I've done. And of course my blood runs cold and I say, Oh, oh God, he's, he's a good uh, impersonator. So, you know, he's, he can disguise his voice very well. So, you know, I said, Oh Christ. Oh dear. I, I do apologize. I'm really sorry. Now, what can I do about it? And then after about two minutes, I begin to get a bit suspicious and realize it's that Metzler. actually it's Metzler. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he, he is uh, also the manager, the European manager anyway, for, Chuck, for Chuck Profit. Yeah. And so we got offered a show and uh, it was probably, uh, I knew at Soundcheck that it was going to be the greatest thing we had so far put on, leaving aside Richard Fontaine, who are in a category of their own. But, um, because he has these extraordinarily brilliant musicians in his band. So the band mm. consists of uh, his wife, Stephanie Finch, who plays keyboards and uh, and uh, acoustic guitar and electric guitar sometimes and sings. And uh, a absolutely wonderful bassist called Kevin T. White, mm. who also lives in San Francisco. And uh, he's like, uh, he and whoever is drumming at the time tend to put down this extraordinarily groovy, funky type rhythm section upon yeah. which Chuck can, Chuck can build his songs. And currently the, the, their um, guitarist uh, is called uh, James De Prato or De Prato. I never quite remember exactly how it's pronounced. And he is a, a extraordinary foil for, for Chuck. Uh, and they can play off each other by doing Thin Lizzy, Wishbone Ash style dual guitar. They, they, it's great. They, they ration it. So they don't, 
overdo it. But once or twice in each set, they'll they'll burst into this fantastic melodic. Uh, is it called octave spacing? I don't know. Guitar. Um, yeah, it could be. Yeah, lines. Yeah, it could, yeah, could yeah, do yeah. It in octaves. Yeah. Mm. So, uh, but the first time we had him uh, over was with a with a slightly different band. I, I regret to say we we have joked a lot about the exploding drummer syndrome, a la a la Spinal Tap, because I think I'm right in saying the first four times they came, it was four different drummers. I'm not totally sure that that's correct, but anyway, they've now settled with a long-term drummer, Vicente Rodriguez. Uh, and so, Richard, you won't believe this. I've actually done some research because yeah. I thought that for a change, maybe we should make this particular episode accurate and truthful. Oh, blimey. Um, yes. So I've got the date. So April 22nd, 2005, was the first time we put this band on. So they, they turn up. And they've got all the sort of absolutely top of the range gear. Mm. I think for summer gigs, we've actually hired amps and things, but, um, and they're sound checking and my jaws sort of pretty much on the floor and it's, it's fantastic. And we, um, and, and the venue is sold out. In fact, slightly oversold. I shouldn't say this, but yeah. I've sort of said yes to some friends. We, we get a lot of people ringing up saying, Oh, I forgot to buy a ticket. Do you think you could possibly just sneak me in? Uh, yes. So, uh, the band strikes up and everything is going really well. And the audiences, I, I should mention one of the quirks of what we do is that we ask the audiences to be quiet. Uh, people absolutely hate certain things about modern gigs. One of them is they can't stand people filming them on their mobile phones. And the other thing uh, is that they absolutely hate anybody talking near them. And I'm fully in agreement with that. Hmm. So we forbid people to talk. <laughs> And should they have the temerity to do so, we send my rather intimidating wife in to uh, to shut them up, and that 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 ninety percent of the time does the trick. Do you remember on that first gig we had a complete and utter maniac in the audience? <gasps> oh, he, the guy that he he got in <laughs> late, and he was he was was he he ended up buying a ticket off of somebody outside. There was something where he was almost kind of trying to bribe his way in. He was, he, he was slaughtered and he was absolutely slaughtered. That's it. And we made the decision not to let him in. And I think even though we could probably have got another one in and there was something where he then found out out the front that somebody else was getting. So, Oh God. Yeah. I think somebody probably, yeah, I think somebody probably had a spare ticket. Uh, uh, and this guy, well, I, I, I'll always remember him. And we've never seen him before or since. No. Uh, he seemed to be a big fan of Chuck. He seemed to know all the songs, what have you. And he was very small. I would yeah, say he's about, a short, stocky guy, yeah, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah. And he was wearing, wearing a suit, a black yeah. Yeah. suit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And because he was very small, he pushed his way right to the very front of the stage. And from about halfway through the gig, he started heckling. And shouting out things. And I can't even remember the kind of things he was shouting. It wasn't aggressive. It was just drunken bonhomie type. Yeah. yeah. And I was just mortified. I thought, oh, no, we've managed to get this, you know, really well-known artist here. And we want to make sure that he comes back and hope that he realizes, you know, we, he's going to have a lovely time here. And there's this lunatic. Anyway, I hadn't realized just what a a seasoned pro road warrior Chuck is of course, because he plays the road houses of America mm. and he, he can deal with anybody. Yeah. 
And somehow or other, he actually managed to sort of keep this guy on the boil. We didn't have to have him ejected. And he kept heckling, but not too offensively. And at the end, I think Chuck gave him his autograph and posed for a photograph with him or something. And then, and that's when I realised, you know, who we were dealing with here, somebody who just nothing is going to phase this guy. Mm. Mm. You know, if, if the venue sort of <laughs> exploded halfway through the set, he'd just shrug his shoulders. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so that was uh, a good thing. And then I started almost immediately getting messages from Metzler saying, uh, look, it's gone so well. We'd like to come back and do another show next year, but I'm afraid uh, we need a bigger venue. Yeah. And I thought, well, I don't like going outside my comfort zone, but let's try. So I approached this venue in Southampton called The Talking Heads. Of course. And that was then the scene of the attempted murder. Now, were you at that gig? I was because that's the um yes i was i was no were you were you helping me pull john murray off i was Jan's say, neck and preventing was, him from strangling him oh was it this is this is fat john murray as well isn't it oh this is fat overweight bearded heroin addict john murray yeah yeah this is john i remember seeing john i mean a guy pulling their trousers up is never a good sight but john murray in those days pulling his trousers up was a particularly not a good sight um so yeah i do remember that i was getting it confused whether it was fontaine and john and bob supporting but it was it was chuck wasn't it that's right yes. can you can you describe the bob frank and john murray duo who were opening they we, we'd never heard of them didn't know anything about them and they were supporting chuck prophet and the mission express well they they, they did that whole kind of album of murder ballads and that was their thing and like yes i think bob has since passed hasn't he yes he like, has last couple, last of, years couple of years yeah he was mm. a he was a was am i right thing he was a vietnam vet and yes. he did like a couple of folksy albums when he got um when he got back from the nam um and and then i, I don't know i guess like him and john hooked up somewhere and did this uh yeah, this this album of um, this album of murder ballads. What more can you say? I mean, it was Some pretty intense, were, but that you know, the clues in intense, the title, yeah. isn't it? Really, yeah. you know, you're not yes. you're not going to listen to that for shits and giggles. <laughs> Certainly not. And and, and uh, some of them were self-written murder ballads and others were traditional ones. And Bob was much older than John, hmm. uh, grizzled old sort of, you know, looked like a like a cowboy. But he was really sweet, charming guy. Yeah. And at that time, and Lord knows uh, things have changed extraordinarily since then. But at that time, as we just said, John, I'd never met him before, didn't never heard of him, actually. He, But he... Uh, was very overweight, had a sort of straggly beard, uh, was a, a heroin addict, and generally uh, looked as though... Well, he looked very frightening, actually, because he was so big. And uh, the story goes, uh, and Lord knows I've told it enough times, but never in, don't ask me. Um, they come, they're coming towards the end of their set. They've got one number left to do, and the audience is really enjoying it it's strange music you've got you've got bob doing the sort of rather folksy acoustic guitar and john playing this very effects laden yeah. scratchy electric lead lines over the top of it and uh for some reason the tour manager who is this dutch gentleman called 
Young decides he doesn't want them to do the last song. And instead of uh, consulting them or me, he he walks up the stage and he does that, you know, that movement where you do your finger across your throat, meaning yeah. that, that's the end of it. That this very same movement for which uh, Toya Wilcox called me a wanker, but that's another story which we'll have to <laughs> we'll have to tell uh, on another occasion. Uh, well, John went absolutely mad at this, but I kind of could see that it was going to be. So I went to Jan and I said, "It's fine, you know, we're ahead of time. Let them do another song." Yeah, and he just said uh, no, and he went back and he unplugged them. Ooh. And, of course, there's few more undignified things than an artist uh, being unplugged and suddenly standing there, you know, singing like goldfish and you can't hear anything. Yeah. Anyway, cut a long story short. Next thing I know, John Murray has come off the stage. He's got Jan up against the wall with his very large <laughs> hands around his neck. <laughs> and certainly, I don't know if it was you, but I and some other people, I think you have, um, have, are having to pull him off. And... Uh, I thought, you know, we can get some press out of this. If he if if, if he does die, you know, murder at the murder ballad uh, gig, it, it would have been great publicity. But uh, we thought better perhaps to prevent the murder. So uh, we pulled him off. So anyway, that was the end of that. So that particular show didn't feature a controversy surrounding Chuck Prophet, but it did feature the worst controversy we've ever had. Oddly enough, John and Bob stayed with us that night and I got to know John and we've become kind of lifelong friends ever since. And mm. I'm delighted to say that he's now no longer a, a junkie and uh, he's very slim and uh, uh, in fact, he's got a new album coming out uh, very shortly, but we won't talk about that. So that was that. So that was actually, I haven't said the date yet, October the 3rd, 2007. Uh, so the next occasion that uh, Chuck and the Mission Express visited Winchester was April 2008. Mm. And this is the occasion when, uh, I'm sure you remember, A, I think you'd set the gig up, and B, you created their uh, alfresco lunch for them. For Chuck Profit and the Mission Express? Yeah, because the support on that occasion was Willie Flaughton. Oh, oh. Oh, and it was the, the thing at the university where Willie and Paul did the, well, Willie did the book reading and Paul played pedal steel along with him. Is that right? Correct. That's the one. Ah, and we had the, yeah, well, that was, yeah, glory days of, yeah, Tony Dean and Sharon both working at the uni. So things like that were entirely possible. So because of that, them, we managed to do that. Um, yeah, I don't really remember doing the picnic, but. I remember I remember being outside on some tables, but I don't remember. Oh, right. Well, okay. So it was, was Willie doing that whole support thing on his own, which is him and Paul supporting Chuck that night? That's then, right. The yeah, that's ah, right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And uh, he wasn't doing um, a book presentation every day, but we no. set this up specifically in order to uh, in order to enable him to do this thing at the university in the afternoon yeah i've got the poster for that is 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 on oh, the website really? actually oh i'll have to have a look at that 
What is your website, Richard? Why don't you mention it? Because <laughs> well, you don't mention yours, but <laughs> well, no, but mine's not so uh, not so. Uh, what's the word? Uh, voluminous as yours. It's in the show notes. If anybody goes to the show notes, it's got oh, both okay. our websites there. If anybody's interested. So. so why am I mentioning this particular show? Because in actual fact, everything went absolutely fine, and there were no maniacs in the audience, and yeah. and no equipment breakdowns or anything. Well, the reason is that on the next morning when they tried to set off for Nottingham or wherever they were heading for, their van had broken down. Oh, it, that's the same day. Right. Okay. Got you. Got you. Yeah. I know this. And I have already mentioned this, but uh, uh, because I was referring to, um, to, to Willie, but uh, I then got to spend the whole day with Willie Vlorton. So it was very, uh, um, oh, what's the word? Fortuitous, that's it. Uh, yeah, because, because of the Xander uh, thing. Yeah, that's right. And then we became, I uh, don't want to exaggerate it, but we became pals. And so uh, th that was actually a good result. But it, it, it could have been a terrible result because it was some really vital part of the the braking system that had, that had gone. And so if they, you know, crashed on the motorway or something, maybe that third gig on uh, eight. April twenty second two thousand eight might have been the last ever Chuck Profit gig. Well, Thank the other it wasn't, and the other person that got a good result that day was Birgit because I've got photographs of her whooping Chuck's ass on the tish tennis. <laughs> in your I'm garden. pretty sure that might have been that. I'm pretty sure that was that day because uh, mm. Stephanie Finch, Chuck's wife, turned out to be a demon table tennis player. Oh, really? Uh, oh, she's really, really good. Yeah. And very determined is, as well. This is just too much time musicians spending in recording studios where there's a table tennis table. This is my theory. Have you ever been in a recording studio with a table tennis table? Yeah, like almost everyone that I've ever been oh, in. Oh, really? The Amrick, oh. Amrick Ray, yeah. rest in peace, Tripp's old manager, he, he was a demon table tennis player. Oh. The one person I've never played, he's meant to be brilliant, and played for... Wales schools or something is is Pete Bruntnell apparently Pete Bruntnell Brunt Pete Bruntnell is the best table tennis player I've ever seen and really? he was Surrey Junior Champion Surrey Junior Champion Peter Bruntnell yes. there you go that's nice right because of course he his his uh, mother lives in the Surbiton area doesn't she so yeah uh, it's around two four seven September the twenty ninth two thousand and nine uh, was again. And a trouble-free Chuck Profit gig, as far as I know. But each time what was happening was that the uh, audience was getting more and more packed because I would have more and more people yeah. coming in. But what we did discover, and you'll see as we continue down the list of shows, is going to a bigger venue didn't necessarily work for the for the band or indeed for anybody else because... Roughly 150 people is the number of people who want to come and see Chuck Profit in this mid-Hampshire area. Yeah. So if we move it to Southampton or Guildford or Portsmouth or whatever, you'll still get the same 150 people coming to see him because the people that come to us have come from Bournemouth yeah. uh, and, you know, Farnham and places like that. So moving to a bigger venue actually made things worse because A, the venue might not be quite full mm -hmm. and th Chuck thrives on very full venues. And B, uh, we have to pay more to hire it. So yeah. actually they ended up, they would end up uh, with, with actually less money at the end of the evening. So that wasn't the point. Um, but uh, the thing that happened on that occasion was that 
Chuck managed to fall out with the landlady of the B&B that we we put him in. Um, and the reason for it was, I, I always I, I tried to picture the scene because you know that Faulty Towers episode with the Americans yeah. where there's a kind of sort of, do they call it two nations divided by a single language or something? Where Yeah, I think Wilde said that, yeah. <laughs> yes, where whereby, uh, you know, this guy's wanting the Waldorf salad and Basil doesn't know what a Waldorf salad is. And I, basically, Chuck needed a lion, quite mm. right, too. But of course, only in this country can they say, I'm afraid breakfast finishes at nine o'clock. If you're lucky, she's at like 6.30 <laughs> or something. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those awful British uh, B&B things, isn't it? Uh, and uh, if you haven't written on a piece of paper the night before what you want for breakfast, you won't, you won't, you won't get, get it. it. Yeah, because uh, cooked and, the night before, probably. He had the temerity to uh, to question this and say, I think in a very polite way to say, would it be possible for me to have a lion and not have the breakfast? And whereupon, yeah. uh, uh, well, I still live in the village, so I better not describe the landlady too closely. But uh, uh, she said, uh, no, because we have to get the room ready for the, the next people coming in at 11 or whenever. <laughs> so apparently Chuck reacted uh, not very well to this. And uh, there was a sort of a bit of an icy atmosphere and... Uh, uh, his dear wife Stephanie was sort of tr trying to persuade him to just accept it and not make a thing out of it. Um, and in the end, I was given permission to go around the next day and apologise on their behalf to this lady. So <laughs> I don't quite know what was said, but very sensibly, uh, the, pre the, the next few times they came, they decided they would prefer not to stay in that particular B&B. So that was uh, 2010. And then another one, which I know you'll remember, and I'd love you to describe if you can remember, is when Stephanie Finch and the company men <gasps> came on December the 12th, 2010. So it was later that same year. Now, Stephanie's Chuck's wife had made an album, a wonderful record, which I really love, called Cry Tomorrow. And she had this all-star band, uh, which included uh, Kelly Stoltz playing drums, Chuck yeah. on lead guitar. And... Uh, well, can you remember what happened that night? Snow happened, lots and <laughs> yes. lots and lots of snow, uh, just an unbelievable amount of snow, more snow than ever, probably. Probably if you go through Winchester snow records, that's probably <laughs> the, yeah, the, the snowiest day ever. I don't remember. Yeah, it, I just remember, I, that's all I remember of it. I just remember there being snow and then therefore like, big doubt about whether it should go ahead whether it could go ahead who was going to turn up who wasn't going to turn up it well was... the forecast uh, was for snow but actually when the show started there wasn't any snow um and that was the extraordinary thing about it and it was that then at, by uh, 11 o'clock when the set was finished we opened the doors for people to go out and there was about six inches out there yeah and uh, it was the most magical sort of because you know the railway has twinkly lights and things, and it felt it felt like Christmas. It was, it was, it was very very exciting um, and memorable for that reason, but also memorable because it was it was a, it was a very good show as well. And uh, the next morning, I had to go and pick them up from the travel lodge in Eastleigh because that's where they decided they preferred to stay, and. It was really quite frightening because I was sliding around on the snow, desperately trying to, to get them back home uh, intact for the fry-up. Because obviously, you know, uh, 
travel lodges don't offer much in the way of a breakfast. It's like that time we tried to go and see PJ Harvey and, <gasps> and ended up turning around. We got as far as the garage on Andover Road because there was all that snow. I don't know where we were it, going, Oxford was, or Bristol or it, something. Bristol, no, no, guess, it was, no, it was Yeovil. Was it? Yeah. We were going to drive but, to Yeovil in the snow. Yeah, that it was sounds Sutton's, sensible, doesn't it? <laughs> it was Sutton Scotney services we got to, actually. And, and it was... Uh, I think it was a convoy with David Eno in one car. Yeah, and, that's uh, right. Yeah. We in another car. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we we never made it. And uh, I, I think, actually, that the gig went ahead with hardly anybody there because, obviously, I don't think anybody could get to the gardens in Yeovil, which was this seedy nightclub where they were playing. But, yeah, that was disappointing, wasn't it? Because that was going to be a big night out. But. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, Chuck, yeah. so Oh, well, I finished with that one because oh. uh, that's all it was, really. Oh, no. Oh, no, it wasn't because, of course, they then ended up staying, I think, maybe two or even three nights because they couldn't get on to their next gig because oh. uh, the motorways were closed. Uh, I think it was only one extra night. Um, so uh, I'm sure we had yet another table tennis tournament at that stage. Probably. Right, now, Richard, over to you. January the 11th, I think, 2011. Yes, somebody had the bright idea. Um, I think it was a Spanish promoter. Uh, decided to get certain bands that wouldn't necessarily get a big crowd throughout Spain to play, to basically cover an entire album um, that would draw a crowd. So I think some of the other, I might have got this wrong, but it was like the Sadies doing a Teenage Fan Club album. That was one. And then at some point, I've got a feeling that Giant Sand went out there and did Johnny Cash at San Quentin. Um, so there was this promoter doing all this kind of odd stuff. And the one that we went to was this promoter got Chuck Prophet and to get a band together called Chuck Prophet and the Spanish Bombs to go out and do the whole of London Calling start to finish and do a tour of Spain doing it. And one of the dates on that was Granada, which I knew a bit. And so, yes, you and I went to Spain for 24 hours, if less, to to go and see <laughs> Chuck Prophet and the Spanish Bombs playing Granada, which was, a you know, a wonderful thing on lots of levels. I mean, it's obviously it's the it's the best album ever made. And I said to Chris Cowan the other day, you're entitled to your own opinions, but not your own facts. And, <laughs> and also out of all the places that get mentioned on that album in the song, Spanish bombs, there's a mention of Granada. So actually, you know, being in the crowd at that point in Spanish bombs, when everybody shouts out in Granada was just a, yeah, a glorious, glorious thing. But it was, yeah, left Gatwick early in the morning, I guess, didn't we? And then I remember fall, falling off the bus at Granada. We got the bus from Malaga up to Granada and I fell over and really hurt my knees. So I was sort of like hobbling, oh, hobbling, yes. hobbling a bit. Yeah, you, you actually, it, it made holes in your jeans, didn't it? I, yeah. I'd forgotten well, no, that. The weirdest thing about that, though, you got off before me and as I was falling, I kind of like, sort of went to steady myself by grabbing your bag and you shrieked because you thought you were being mugged or something <laughs> you're going oh no <laughs> so yeah that was a bit oh dear god I, yeah i forgot about that but yeah so that was good and yeah we stayed at god, i can never remember the name of that street ka can't remember but we went to the um we went to the greatest bar in the world bodegas castaneda um uh, which is, I, when i yeah 
when I'm trying to describe that place to people, because obviously uh, gr- gr- Grenada is a uh, Grenada. Sorry. Grenada. I always get it mixed up with the Caribbean. Well, they're so similar, aren't they? Um, Grenada is a popular weekend break destination. Mm. And I always say to those to people that say, you know, do you know anything about Grenada? Ah, the best pub in the entire world. You must go there. And yeah. they say, oh, yes, what it's called, what's it called? And I never remember the name called. of it. And it's also confusing because there's, there's, in a way, there's two of them. Because th- there was one big bar which straddled kind of two streets run by brothers who then back in the day fell out oh really yeah yeah so there's there's a bodegas castaneda on the street that runs parallel to the street that the bodegas castaneda that i know is on um and you the other one's all right but it's like nothing compared to nothing compared to the proper one and you've been i mean we i guess we went there again as well didn't we when when you came no, over um, we, we, oh with Birgit when I was yes, in you're, you're, Yes, yeah, of course we must we have did. taken Birgit there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, definitely. yeah. Of course, we we yes, we went to a. You took me to an anarchist bar, which was fantastic. that's a cool place as well. Yeah, lots of people playing chess and uh, stroking their beards and yes, yeah, watching. And we went to an extremely good flamenco evening, which I would never have dared go to because I would have the picture of it as being like a tourist trap. And in fact, it was very intense and 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 absolutely thrilling thing yeah yeah no it's it, well it's a it's a god granada what a city could you just place. um just briefly recap on the connections between joe strummer and granada oh yeah well strummer spent a lot of time in spain he had a, a he had a place in um a little seaside town called san jose in uh almeria province but also spent a lot of time in in Granada and it weirdly enough um there's different factions there's the Granada faction the Almeria faction that both claim Joe for their own <laughs> um which is in a way quite kind of sweet but yeah he spent a lot of time in Granada and in 2013 they um yeah they they opened up a plaza Joe Strummer in Granada which I discovered when I went with my wife, we, we, we found it. It's a little mm. bit out of the centre. And uh, I've, got a, I've got a picture of me um, standing beside the, I think it's Placeta, which is, might be oh, yes, like a, right. a little plaza. Yeah, it is. Yeah, Placeta. Uh, yeah. How wonderful to have a, have, have a little place in the world named after Joe Strummer. Yeah, it's a very, it's a pretty rock and roll town. And I was actually, I was there for the opening of... Placeta Joe Strummer because <gasps> incidentally it, it just it just just complete coincidence that two weeks after I moved out there it was opening and it was in the paper and like Strummer's wife like gave a speech and there was bands playing and lots of people there and it was a really good day apart from the fact that I wore my posh expensive loafers and god my feet were hurting so I was sort of <laughs> like so yeah that's two kind of like Granada's experiences I've had where I was stumbling around a bit so that kind of that ruined it I don't know why why, why I wore them it was kind of schoolboy error really I was just it impressed was a, by having posh shoes it was a hell of a show because it was a really like my your idea of a, of, of a proper rock club a really atmospheric place wasn't it and they had uh, yeah this guy Chris von Snyden who's doing kind of a lot of the lead vocals and um 
we had a few schnapses of some kind, and I guess Spanish ones, I guess. Do you remember that? I think we had a few Pacharans, I would imagine. And the other thing about that gig is that Johnny Green, who was yes. um, Clash manager slash road crew, he got up and did a little talk from his, um, what's his book called? A Right of Their Own or something? Right of Their Own, yes, yeah. it is, yeah. Um, so, yeah, he did a bit of that. But the, the, the band, the Spanish Bombs, were phenomenal. There's actually a, um, there's a kind of official video of their bill bow gig but i think a lot of that granada gig is online as well if there if, if i can find the link if it still exists it was in like some the southern spanish indie rock journal online thing um I'll, I'll put the link in the show notes for that but it was a yeah that was a yeah it was a cracker that was just so so good they did i'll so, never so forget well. it and, and we had to get up early the next morning and come home again didn't we it was uh Mm. Uh, it was a definitely uh, a a what's the word there must be a word for when you go somewhere just for a specific purpose and then come back again and don't do anything else <laughs> yeah i'm not sure a destination event uh, or something Des- yes a destination event i don't think that's right no I'll, it's not I'll, at all I'll, but... I'll, I'll come i'll come up with the with what it was yeah. so now we move on to april the 14th 2012 and of the ones coming up I honestly can't decide which ones were more awful for me and <laughs> such good examples of the swan with the flapping feet because nobody probably in the audience would have been aware of just how dreadful things were going on behind the scenes hmm. uh, or in this case on the scenes because somebody who I slightly knew had contacted me. We, we decided to do, we decided to solve the problem of the venue being small by doing two shows in one day. Yeah. And uh, so the idea was to do an afternoon show and an evening show. And somebody who I vaguely knew contacted me and said, my friend is getting married uh, in Winchester on that day. And he's the world's biggest Chuck Prophet fan. And please, would it be possible for him to come along and bring uh, his, uh, all his guests and effectively have, the reception so without thinking about it sufficiently i was aware that we could do with selling about another 40 tickets or so for the afternoon show and he was saying that there would be 30 people coming along and you they would buy the tickets in bulk yeah uh by your questioning tone i've got a feeling you weren't at this gig were you it it, it ring the story is ringing bells but I, all right but... well join in if you recognize it which you will in a minute uh so I said yes, and I was quite pleased about this idea, you know, the world's greatest fan, and, and et cetera, et cetera. Well, what I hadn't realised was that the wedding was at lunchtime, and by the time all these people pitched up at the railway in mid-afternoon, they were absolutely bladdered. Oh, of course, yeah. And, of course, inevitably, some of them weren't Chuck Prophet fans at all. They would just come along for the wedding and they thought this was a reception. Yeah. So we immediately had problems with people talking loudly yeah. and ignoring the band, which you never get at a Chuck Prophet show. Uh, and we had two further problems. One was that, uh, bless her heart, the bride was slightly drunk and was picking disagreements with people in the audience, particularly one very tall guy who literally uh, confronted her and said, look, you're ruining, you and your friends are ruining my enjoyment of the, of the gig by your loud 
uncouth behaviour. And she then got into a massive great argument with him, which Birgit, as usual, had to break up. Yeah. In the end, he, he, he persistently emailed me afterwards until I gave in and gave him his money back, <laughs> even though he was an incredibly tall person. I said, why don't you just move away from her and, and, and therefore you don't need to be worried about it? And he said, it's because I'm considerate to the other members of the audience. I'm very tall. And if I move forward, people won't be able to see past me. Oh, dear. So once again, this is one of these things that probably 90% of the audience have no knowledge that no. any of this would be going on. No. And then, of course, next thing we know, the two of them are up on stage uh, waltzing, the, the bride and groom, to uh, Chuck and Stephanie playing uh, Then He Kissed Me. And it was a wonderful emotional moment, and it was fantastic. And another example of what an unbelievably committed pro Chuck Prophet is because he pulled it off with total aplomb yeah. and everything ended happily. And so that was a, a, a another good one. And so, therefore, we move on now to April 29th, 2013. Equal first in the horrific events uh, category, because this was the one which you may have heard of. You see, Richard, you travel around and live in all these different places, and I can never remember where you would have been. You can what, work out in a minute and tell was, me. What 2013, where were you? Were you already in Spain? I went to Spain in 2013, yeah. Oh, wait, you, 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 you got away from this one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, once again, the request had been made, can we play a larger venue in a different place? So I hired uh, a club in Southampton called The Cellar, which is just by the Guildhall. And it was a bit, it had a bit of a funny layout, but the capacity was bigger and uh, everything seemed to be okay because they always bring their own engineer with them. So, uh, you know, sound is normally not going to be any kind of issue. A great set. Everything went brilliantly. And... You may remember that Chuck always carries a notebook around with him. It's a large, um, like a ring binder folder. Yeah. And in it, he's got all his lyrics. He's got all his song notes. He's got absolutely, utterly crucial things for his for his career and his own sort of well-being, which it was impossible, that unthinkable that he would lose it. And, of course, he goes off stage and within five minutes, he comes back to start packing up the gear and it's gone. Uh, and it's quite obvious that somebody's stolen it. God. And can you imagine, you know, that feeling in your stomach when you suddenly realize something awful's happened and you, your stomach goes. Yeah. And of course, quite correctly, Chuck was, well, he wasn't angry as much as terribly disappointed and upset and worried about this thing. And we, of course, we searched everywhere. And we, anyway, to cut it all short, we had completely given up on it. And I thought, well, that's it. He's never going to come back here. We've had our last Chuck Prophet show because he's been so let down by this horrible event. Yeah. And it must have been about a month later, I got a phone call from the venue. And they said, somebody came in today and left a brown envelope on the bar. And inside the envelope no, is Chuck's. Really? Yep. Oh, I didn't know that part of the story. I, I, I knew the I knew the bit about it being nicked. I didn't know it came back. Yeah. Wow. And I can only assume it was an obsessive fan or somebody who was drunk and just did it on the spur of the moment. Didn't didn't realize, you know, quite at the time what they were doing. And when they realized, because obviously there was a big internet uh, 
requests going out yeah. worldwide. So anybody knows, no questions asked sort of thing. It was round about the same time as his Telecaster was stolen in America, in, I think in San Francisco. And, uh, and again, uh, that was another thing, extraordinary thing, where it, it was returned a few days later with no questions asked when the person who'd done it just obviously had some either a pang of conscience or realised just how serious it was and uh, I don't know. But anyway, thank goodness for that. The, the, I, I was felt that maybe they would come back after all. Uh, uh, I took a picture of my cat at the time sitting on it <laughs> to, to try and make the whole thing seem a bit more cuddly. <laughs> yeah, not the cat oh. you've got now then. No, no, she's not cuddly by any means. She would have scratched the thing to pieces. Exactly, yeah, that's destroyed the last thing you want to do. Give Poppy that notebook. Goodbye, notebook. <laughs> this was Marble, who was a lot more placid. Yeah. 2014, October the 12th, was a, was a pretty more normal sort of railway gig, except that there was a major problem with the keyboards, which meant that it was very tense right up until the door opened as to whether the keyboards were going to work properly. And, you know, you had loads of people scurrying around, desperately changing leads and unplugging things and plugging them back in. And, uh, you know, so once again, in the background, there's my me gritting my teeth and worrying yeah. like hell that everything's going to be disastrous. And then on the um, June, on the 5th of June, 2015, we had our show that was in the Joiners Arms, Southampton. Again, this was because the request had come in. We want to play somewhere bigger and different. So once again, I hired the Joiners Arms. And guess what, Richard? 150 people came. It was exactly the same yeah. as the seller and yeah, the talking exactly. heads. Yeah. Uh, it was exactly the same number of people, except they got less money because uh, we had to pay more to hire the place. Hmm. Uh, and in this audience, there was another idiot. And this was a young idiot. Uh, who was drunk but very enthusiastic and kept shouting out, you know, requests and comments and things. And, and as ever, Chuck was, in fact, he was even more ridiculously professional than usual because he's, he, he, he solved the problem by giving this guy his guitar in the audience. He just handed the guitar to this guy and said, do you know? And he established somehow this guy did know the two chords that were necessary for the song. And he let the guy play his guitar for uh, just two or three minutes in the intro to this song. Yeah. Well, uh, th that was very impressive, um, but it didn't impress another older person in the audience who then after the show berated me for allowing this to happen. You know, he said, the whole show's been ruined by that bloke's terrible behavior and how could you let this happen and i said well you know if i'd stepped in and there'd been a punch-up or something that would have been a lot worse the way that chuck solved it was was yeah. brilliant in a yeah. way let it play out oh so anyway that was a that was another one God. and then uh on the february the 18th 2017 we did have what i would call a faultless show because Absolutely nothing went wrong. No equipment failures, no maniacs in the audience. <laughs> I know. What a rarity. It's but... a bit like that day-to-day -day thing, isn't it? What... Yeah. <laughs> November the 17th, 2017, <laughs> nothing happened. Well, what did happen was the poor buggers, they had to then, the moment they came off stage, they had to ram everything into the van and zoom up to London because they were going to be on the Andrew Marr show the oh, next morning. Yeah, I remember this. Yes, which was, again, quite an extraordinary thing because they had to be there at 5 a.m. To, to get set up and rehearse. And then at the end of it all, I mean, it is a very strange concept, isn't it? It's a political 
show where, you know, top government ministers are interviewed. And then they sit looking incredibly embarrassed for the last minute or so while some band that they never heard of comes on and plays a song. But yeah, very odd. Very odd. Indeed. So they were given 90 seconds. So they had, they had to play 90 seconds worth of a song. I can't remember what song it was, which which they can re reduce to about a quarter of its actual length in order to have the last chord going wang just as the the credits are coming up. So, but they're as ever professional as ever. And the other professional thing about that was they could have cut their sh show a bit short, you know. But no, they they were asked for encores and they came back for encore after encore. That's the kind of reason that I respect bands like that so much that they they never shortchange the audience they never let you down as as you have seen um and then the final uh example before we come to the end of this uh marathon was my birthday uh my 70th birthday 2018 september the 8th mm. where uh chuck and stephanie played in the twyford parish hall and uh i can't say it was smooth running because uh there were a it was a strange thing that happened was that they spent a long time sound checking. I think they were jet lagged. And uh, after the sound had finally been all set perfectly, um, I discovered in the interval that somebody tripped over a lead and it had become unplugged and all the settings had been lost. Oh, and my I had, God. I know. And I had to pluck up courage and go to Chuck and Stephanie and say, Look, I'm really sorry, but everything you've done has been wasted, and you've now got to re-sound check. <sighs> but again, uh, to my amazement, you know, they, they they would have been well justified in in being absolutely furious, and probably internally they were. But they immediately said, "Okay, well, what we do? Would you please just empty the hall? Luckily, it was hot. Mm. Get everybody outside, shut the doors. We'll just sound check again." And they sound check in about ten minutes, and of course, everything was perfect. And for my um, huge birthday uh it was a it was quite a, a a wonderful thing for them to do so i'll forever be grateful and uh please lord above may we have gigs back soon so they would have been here now they were going to come over in june uh and uh i was gonna we were going to get a show towards the end of 2020 that's not going to happen we no idea when they'll be back but knowing them and all the things i've described about their professionalism they will be back I'm sure. And do you want to like say something about because um, Steve Simpkins written a book about Chuck? Mention that. Oh, because... of course. Uh, how could I forget? In fact, this I'm hoping that we can time the release of this uh, edition of our podcast to 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 coincide with the uh, publication of, of of Stevie's book. Stevie is. Uh, we were talking about the University of Winchester. He's a lecturer in film studies at Winchester University, and he's written. Chuck's uh, biography hmm. and he's been working oh, for several years on it it's a, a very scholarly extremely detailed work great read I've I've been lucky enough to have a, a preview of it and it's coming out I'm pretty sure the first or second week of August and this will be a companion piece to it because there isn't much about the background to shows because of course only you and I are privileged <laughs> to see that madness. <laughs> to experience the madness yeah and so maybe this would be a little adjunct to every time you go and see any band but particularly Jeff Prof and the Vision Express the madness that's going on behind the scenes but how they will never let you down no matter how crazy it all becomes 
Definitely. And if you can go to that show and you don't end up pulling off John Murray, then that's a result as well. <laughs>